A word to the wise. We are an explicit podcast tackling content with adult themes as well as entering spoiler territory if you aren't caught up with us. This week, that is through the end of The Well of Ascension by Branderson. That would be Mr. Brandon Sanderson. Just make sure that you're you're caught up through the end of the book. They know who Branderson is, Crossland. Maybe they don't. All right. And I wanted to say Mr. Branderson. Uh, Mr. Branderson. <laughs> Mr. Branderson. Hey there, this is Cross. And I'm PJ. And we are Words and Whiskey, a podcast for veteran and novice readers alike. We tackle fiction novels and love to talk about what we're drinking. You should think of us as your intoxicating weekly book club. Crossland. You and I just talked for an hour (laughs) before the podcast. (sighs) Yep. Drinking the entire time. So this is a rowdy start. A rowdy start to a finale episode. (laughs) Which is are generally easier to go through because they pose a lot of questions in a fun way, you know, and we get to resolve things and we can kind of talk mm-hmm. ourselves in circles, which means it's going to be long. <laughs> yeah. So I would like to point this out. I think we talked about this maybe last week, but I, mm-hmm. I don't know if it made it in or not. We are going to try to stay to this, this section of the text, like this final section of the book, because next week, we have a wonderful guest, the Foxy Reader. Julie is going to be discussing the entirety of The Well of Ascension with us. So this is going to be more or less a standard format talking about the last section of the book. I know we've done this before. We've done several books before this, but I just want to like make sure everybody has their expectations set for what we're going to be talking about because... Holy shit, a lot happens, but holy shit, a lot happens. And I want to talk about everything, but like we need to focus a little bit. So we're going to be focusing on this section and what immediately gets pulled in from previous sections of the book, as opposed to the entire book as a whole, which will be next week, which for us is tomorrow. (laughs) We're, We're recording that tomorrow. And that means after tomorrow, I get to read The Hero of Ages, part one. And it's very uh, exciting. I'm very excited about that because, god damn it. Because, you god know, damn it, I think is a good enough answer. I think fair. that's a good that's enough fair. answer. <laughs> in, in case that wasn't enough of a prelude into what we're going to be talking about this week, today is our 12th and final episode discussing The Well of Ascension by Brandon Sanderson, and we are going to chat specifically about chapters 54 through the epilogue. One thing that I want to throw on the top of this as well, if you've been following along, we're basic, we've basically committed to slightly more than a year and a half of Brandon Sanderson, in addition to this year that we've already we're already doing. So it's like a two-year stretch of Brandon Sanderson. So with that, in June, we are going to be doing our short pour. It's going to be on Elantris. So if you want to follow along with us there, just read the first book that Brandon Sanderson ever published. In May, we are also going to be reading Born by Jeff Vandermeer. I will post that on the end. You're not expected to read Born, by the way. I'm talking with Adam about it. Interesting. You're welcome to join if you you can read it in time. It's only like 300 pages. I have like a... I have two 12-hour flights. 
Perfect. So you can probably get through both of those books fairly reasonably. So Born by Jeff Vandermeer. Also, again, it's on my Audible. Yep. So Cool. So that those are our short boards that are coming up. But before we really start talking about this book, PJ, let's talk about what we're drinking today. So I have a cocktail that I made called the Mist Reborn. And this is a cocktail very, very similar to or similar in spirit to, I guess, the Deposed King, which I think I had two or three episodes ago. So two. Yeah. This is an ounce and a half of bourbon and an ounce and a half of rye, which I set out for this to be a bourbon cocktail. Didn't have enough bourbon. So split it with rye. Kind of how it goes. I think that made more sense anyway, though, because it's still a little bit too sweet. Anyway, this is how I made it today. I'm going to go through a little bit of changes that I would make going forward. But anyway, ounce and a half bourbon, ounce and a half rye, three quarters of an ounce of hibiscus liqueur, three quarters of an ounce of rosemary simple syrup, three dashes of Peychaud's bitters, stirred and served into a coupe glass with an absinthe rinse and a twist of lemon. So I think primarily this is missing. It's not really missing anything. I think it is over accentuated on the sweetness. So I'm going to try this again with half ounce each of hibiscus and rosemary instead while maintaining ratios for everything else. So we'll see if that works, but I really, really like the flavors. I just need to tamper the sweetness a little bit. Maybe drop the bourbon and go entirely rye. I'm not sure. We'll see. I'm expecting the next one to be Emperor Elland, and I expect you to have a full grasp on it before it yeah. shows up in the show. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I'll do some editing. We'll see. But yep. following that up... I've got a barrel-aged beer from Pantown Brewing Company, which is the brewery that I most recently worked for. So this is Prodigal Sun. It is a barrel-aged Saison, which is aged in whiskey barrels that previously aged cider. So it's a cider whiskey barrel. I believe it comes from the cidery that's very local to me, called Milk and Honey. I don't know that for sure, but I'm pretty, pretty certain that's the case. Anyway, absolutely delicious. I wish it was a little bit more effervescent. Like I wish the carbonation was a little bit higher, but that's a very, very minor complaint for an otherwise delicious beer. Cool. Sounds tasty. I'm I'm very excited. You said milk. You you told me a little bit of the factoids behind this beforehand, and you said milk and honey, and I immediately thought of the New York City bar, and I was like, really? They age spirits in like barrels? Like that's believable? They're like high class specialty bar? Like they would totally do that? And um, not the same milk and honey. Needless to no. say, no, little different, little different. But what are you drinking, cool Crossland? I am having a cocktail that I'm calling Ellen's Sacrifice. I, I, I'm calling it this because it's kind of a cocktail inspired by Ellen's trust in Vin. And as such, I'm asking you to trust me here with this list of ingredients. So <laughs> what I see it. Is, it. 
I see the list. <laughs> it's not crazy. It's not it's not that insane, but it is a twist on kind of a Mai Tai, but like a, a very different direction, I think. So it's one and a half ounces of Jamaican rum, one ounce of aged rum, generally just a dark aged rum. That's that's what you're seeking here. Two ounces of pineapple juice, a quarter ounce of green chartreuse, which gives us this nice herbal backing. Half an ounce of orgeau for a little bit of that sweet to complement uh, the pineapple juice. Three quarter ounce lemon juice, quarter ounce grenadine, and three dashes of Angostura bitters. All that is shaken by the by and then served over crushed ice and garnished with a lemon twist. It's fucking amazing. This is one of the best drinks I've made. I mean, it's it's some tiki shit, man. It's some tiki shit. This is some tiki shit, you know, and I really like the green chartreuse, I think, is what makes this blossom in such a different direction. I, I considered Campari for a bit and then I thought like dry curacao and then I was like, well, that doesn't really dry curacao would like just back a lot of the already sweet flavors there and like the herbalness from the chartreuse and like that little bit of bitter that it has rounds mm-hmm. out the flavor profile deliciously. I originally tried it without the bitters and I was like, hmm, just a tinge too sweet. So I tossed in those three dashes and it was literally perfect. So I need to get some chartreuse and then I will try this. Yeah. Yeah. I would imagine you could also probably to keep it simpler. You could probably remove the Ango and kick up the chartreuse to a uh, half ounce might be too much, but somewhere between there, like maybe a third of an ounce might be okay. enough to compensate. Just thought, yeah. but Yep. For my back half beer, I originally had a margarita of which I drank on the front end of the episode because we talked so long during the devil's cut. So I'm sorry. I no longer have that margarita. I do, however, have a backup beer because I was concerned that that was going to go for a while. And we talked way too long about something that I didn't expect us to talk (laughs) about. So I have an acerbic fantasy here. It's an IPA from broomtail brewing out of wilmington they're fantastic they've got like all of the nerdy information you want on your beer so for hops we've got tropical citrus flavor aromas citra hops of course falconers flight 7 cs and simcoe are the three hop varietals here and it's a hybrid english and west coast ipa nice so it is super fucking tasty um, sounds delicious. my favorite beer that i've had from broomtail they've been otherwise not not like not bad, but unremarkable. This is remarkable. So bring some my back half if there's any left. Fair. Cool. All right. So before we talk about our chapters, PJ, I kind of want to start doing this again. We did this at the very beginning of, I think, Red Rising and maybe Recursion. And I, I got the urge to bring it back. But just to thematically talk about your feelings for this this week's reading on the whole. How'd you feel? Oh, man, that's a good question. I forgot we used to talk about this. We did just for a bit and then I dropped it because we had so much other stuff to talk about. But I feel satisfied. I think that's the best way to answer that. I I felt like so many questions were answered and so many plot lines were like they came to a head without like without actual full resolution. It felt like a very, very good end to a novel an end to a story without it being end to the to the actual like overarching story. I don't know how you could better end a story like this. You know, like better end a novel like this, middle of a trilogy. Yeah. I don't know. There yeah, no, I I I agree with you. I I empathize quite a bit. I I think that one of the one of the components that I really appreciate about this book is the way that 
the story resolves after this next chapter that we're going to talk about for the most part. And that's the primary arc of this story is resolved when the battle of Luthadel ends. That's what we've spent the most time on. And so we kind of, we generally where you'd enter a sort of post climax, like drawdown for the story. We instead enter into a second climax, which is just kind of insane in every way. And it happens so quick and it pays off things that while we weren't, fully paying attention to throughout the story on the whole they were seeded and so it all made sense and the the central through line here of course is just the well of ascension of which is Mm -hmm. obviously the title of the book and everything else it's so interesting to have not one but two climaxes inside of a story and to have them both be executed so perfectly one could argue there's even three climaxes in the story if you think about Zane and Tensoon as kind of the yeah. first, like the starting point of a lot of this. Like that resolves the mystery. This resolves the battle, like when we when we kill Straff, and then we resolve the Well of Ascension. It's kind of it's sequentially fascinating. It is. I'm with you. Yeah. Cool. With that, we get into chapter 55. We start off the week here with Straff Venture looking at the city and discussing its status with the commander who's there with him, who notes that the fires have gone out among the city ramparts and everything else. He notes an arrow launching through the troops that are charging at their lines all of a sudden, having gathered outside of the city to make this push back. And as it gets closer, closer, it shifts and he notices that it's Vin. She cleaves the king, our piece of shit in chief, in half and is halves mingling with that of the horse corpse here to end Straff Ventures' life. All right. So first and foremost, horse corpse is <laughs> incredibly uh, difficult to say a term. <laughs> yes. But one thing that we didn't get that maybe it makes more sense from like a cinematic standpoint, but I want to see Vin setting up this this launch and this trajectory because she's going to have some opportunity for very fine adjustment coming down but this is a duralamin like duralamin fueled steel push steel push yep iron push steel push iron pull steel push steel push so she is going from a point where She's probably barely able to see where Straff is. Tin helps, whatever. But like, this is such a pinpoint accuracy thing that she's doing that I just, I want to see that moment of calculation before she actually launches. And I want to see what that launch looks like. It's, it is a, it's a fun chapter to be in because we, we start in Straff's perspective and then basically when he dies, it it's like it's gone. I mean, I guess actually no. Never mind. We we do see her like absolutely launching and then like cutting him in half. And we switch perspectives at that moment. Is there a moment between the two where we're not in a living character's perspective? No, we we are in Vin's perspective, right? We yep yep because yep, there's yep, there's yep. the line break there. So it it does feel like we aren't in a living person's perspective, but it is Vin. Yep. Yeah. So it is, you know, I, I think we were talking about this last week when it when it came to like the idea of Straff dying, maybe a more satisfying death and a more poetic death in some ways if you would have died to the poison. But at the same time, it would have felt he's been an antagonist for two books now, you know, like not a primary antagonist in the first book, but a primary antagonist in this book. 
So it would have felt a little like poetic justice. Yes. Good, good kind of revenge in the right way, but not quite as satisfying, I think, as this moment, fair. which he literally gets cleaved in half when she could have done <laughs> it so long ago. And he, he had every opportunity to change and did not. Yeah. Yeah, totally fair. So the the armies continue to clash and we we switch then, of course, from that perspective to Seth's perspective up on the hill. And I love the move here that Alrianne pulls that solidifies really pulling her pulling for Luthadel and Breeze, galloping away from her father and towards the army that she wants him to support. It's just a wonderful moment of sass wherein Set's Set is forced to join Vin's forces to crush Straff's now leaderless army. Yeah, yeah. I feel I don't know how to feel here. I was wrong the whole time, I suppose. Like it's pretty clear. She wasn't she wasn't the one un, undermining the entire I guess that's not necessarily true, but I saw her as a pure antagonist mm-hmm. and underminer for the entire like crew. And that is kind of proven wrong here. So I'll eat that. Yeah, I, I don't blame you for your opinion. Let it let it be known that I don't I don't blame you for your stance because I was also skeptical when I read her the first time. It I, feels I think obvious, meant, right? It, yes, it does feel obvious. It feels like it's meant to be that way. And this feels like it's kind of an undermining of the trope, because when you go back and read it, it is so clear that she's actually been upfront and honest with almost everything the entire time despite having the appearance of being someone who might be deceptive. Yeah. It's because her characters are looking, our character, Vin, for the most part, is looking for a deceiver among the ranks. So that's true too. You know, yeah. And the only other person that we see from their perspective really interact with her, I think is Breeze. And so, and Breeze is getting pushed on and has an emotional attachment. So yeah, it is kind of a misdirect. And I, so I don't blame you for your opinion. But I felt like last week it was it, it had settled out a little bit. And I was like, well, I know it settles out next week, so I'm not going to push this argument. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's fair. But this this lends a little bit of that credence to the fact that I think that she and Set are both for the most like she is a more altruistically good person. than Set is by by kind of necessity, as we can see. And also it does align with her desires, which is Breeze. So like, let's let's make that clear, too. If Breeze was on the other side, it might be a different question. I don't know that she'd fall for Breeze if he was a bad guy. That's another thing. But let's to say, I think that we get some really interesting conversations here later with Set that kind of go into his ideology and philosophy and how I think in a different world, he'd be more similar to Ellen. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think so entirely. I really like Set as a character. I think there's something refreshing to see a character who does not see him as a good person, but uses that view of himself as motivation for being a good leader yeah that's a great way of putting it because that is entirely Mm -hmm. what he's doing is he is often making hard choices that lead to net good results for the most part i mean i I would say reverting the system is not perfect and it's not a good call and it's not one that i think i would make but it is an easy call that would have given him a foothold to like make changes right which I think is kind of what he's going for. So totally. We move to say that approaching the armies of whom is very, very shaken by the events of the day, losing Tindwell and the way that it has absolutely shattered his faith. But a thing a note he's doing here is drawing comparisons directly from how he remembers the text to that of the hero of ages and has begun like Quan 
making excuses for the prophecy of the terrorist religion and the hero he seems to see in front of him. So this is such a huge point that I know I'm going to be making later. Like, I know I'm going to be diving deep on this, but like the iceberg breaches at this point. So I might Mm -hmm. as well address it a little bit here. This is a masterful flaw that Branderson has created for Farrakhami in general. And like, it's starting to reveal this granular detail of how Farrakhami works and how copper mines work in general. And I fucking love it. Like I went off on, on a big like rant. I guess it wasn't that long. But like I, I was kind of going a little bit and wrote up something for the Discord regarding how copper mines work. And like this this is kind of the the starting point of what made me start thinking about that. But there's a much cleaner place to have that conversation later on. So I'm gonna save it for that, I think. Okay. Yeah, and I, I think that this is one of those many moments in which this whole thing is kind of brought to a head and where this whole thing seems to be brought into focus as an issue, right? Because it's it's the rubbing, it's his memory of events, it's him starting to question reality and truth and, and sort of the, the balance between the two. We didn't make a big deal of it last week, but he's called the Holy First Witness for the first time then by the crowd of Ska and the way that that impacts the text and everything else that he sees. It's just, it's all... It's all so well done and then so in front of your face and you really don't piece it together until it's literally spat in your eyes. Like, oh, man. Mm. Yeah. But this is like totally. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. For sure. The final thing to talk about in this chapter is the kneeling here before Vin and her army by Penrod, Set, and Janarl. Vin, holding her massive sword over her shoulder, demands the respect of these leaders and makes them swear allegiance to Emperor Elend Venture. I don't think it's quite so clear yet that she actually asks for that, but she is referred to as Empress, and so it it feels clear. I don't think she makes them swear to Emperor Elend, but you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. There's a point where, I don't think it's here. I wrote it down on a piece of paper, but I'm not sure where that piece of paper is anymore. But there's a point where Vin, maybe, maybe it's Set. Set is either talking about, I think it is Set. Set is either talking about the air, A-I-R, or the air, H-E-I-R, and I can't recall, and I've mostly listened to this section. I read it once, but I've mostly listened, and like I only caught it on my final listen, which was during work today. So, I think it might have been in this chunk, but there's a point where I think Set refers to Vin as the air and that seems weird but it's entirely possible he refers to the air the air so i'm not positive anyway i think that's in the next chapter from what i can what i've read okay yeah so i think it's in the next chapter when they're sitting at the table having the conversation that could be yeah that could totally be it did not appear to be at the end of this chapter but but either way the back and forth between Vin and Set in this section brings brings back forward the good king, good man duality argument that Set is constantly bringing up. And the fact that Vin is able to kind of turn that on its head and say, like, 
but you're not the man that Ellen is and you know it is such a such a satisfying argument to make in this like demand for kneeling it's a power move like it is a totally totally it, it, there's there's something like especially powerful uh, about this man who literally has to be taken off of his horse in order for him to choose to kneel so he has to ask someone else to make him like to allow for him to kneel that just lends like a a slightly different gravitas to his decision right because it's not one that he can like readily get up from this is a this is a stance in a line in the sand that he is kind of drawing to say hey this is exactly what i'm doing yeah it just means kind of in a way that there's like no going back you know after he makes (laughs) i mean he can't like it can't be a false Neil, you know, like he can't right. be setting something up because he's and I, just kind of really stuck in a there. Joking way. It's just literally no, 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 like no. it is. I, I don't think that you're putting it forward as a joke. I think no, right. It could easily be kind of spun that way, but really, what it means, like it, it gives more credence to that decision because it is a not only an internally but externally deliberate move that he has to make. Yep. Yeah. It is, it is something that he literally has to be forced to do. Like, not forced, but it is something that he needs to be com- not compelled either. It has to be done for him. To do. Yeah, it has to be done for him. Yeah. So, yeah. it's it's a very, like, it's a small thing, but it's very compelling, and it could have been done much more poorly. And again, I think that this is something that you can just read in. This is that that thing with Brandon that he's he's described before where he is a window writer. And read what you want from my window that I'm giving you in. And this feels yeah. like a good break moment there for, for that style. Cool. All right. With that, we end that part and head into part six. Words in steel. Just to like shove the dagger in, in case you didn't remember from the beginning of the novel, he names this part after that thing that you probably forgot that I did bring up at least twice on the show. Yeah, <laughs> you did. Just twists it, you know. Any thoughts on the part title? <laughs> It's perfect, man. It's so perfect. Do you feel fucked with? Because you should. Yes, but in in a very. But you're satisfied. Yeah, I've already used the term satisfied, so I'm trying to think of a better way to put it. But it feels like you reached completion. I came. Excellent. (laughs) Yeah, it, it just it all wrapped up so cleanly without actually like wrapping up the story like. The book, the book itself, I think, is one of the most, like, God, fucking, I have to, I have to use it. It's one of the most satisfying books I've read, period. Cool. Especially given the fact that it's, like, not the end of a series. It's in the middle of a trilogy. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a great, it's a great end point. You know, it's, it feels very Empire in the way that there is definitely something that has to be deal, dealt with yet and we mm. we are on a high foot and a back foot at the same time exactly like we've we've came forward but it feels like we might have fallen backwards so all right with that we get into chapter 56 here this is going to be the longest chapter of the week by far everything else is pretty quick and dirty outside of this chapter of which is like the longest chapter i think by page count that we've had in, in there's episode. some meat here <laughs> There's some meat here, uh, so stick around. So with that, we get into the logbook, of course. If Rashik 
fails to lead Alendi astray, then I have instructed the lad to kill Alendi. So, knowing the end of the novel, the very start of this section here is even more fascinating. Again, we we try not to you know talk about too much that's outside of this section because that's obviously for the wrap up. But in particular, this is one that feels like by the time we get to this at the end of the week, you know, Ellen commenting on the mists and sort of the way that they're surrounding and sort of the swirling nature of them and really kind of paying attention and focusing them and you know thinking about how Vin stands in them is just fascinating and then in the end he becomes a mistborn like vin and will no doubt be subsumed by them in kind of a similar way not exactly but you know we can we can assume that mm-hmm. he's a mistborn now it's gonna be you know it's gonna yeah. be a thing i mean there, there's that but also just the text itself as the text mm-hmm. reads it makes me having finished the book and understanding what's going on more than i do like now I understand Rashik. Like, I don't think entirely, because I, I, there's going to be more, I'm sure. But this sort of back and forth and duplicity of of voice that I've been kind of feeling throughout the entire thing has kind of collapsed to a certain extent, and like this makes more sense now. I'm excited to go back and like reapproach all of the other sections that I had taken kind of not offense to, but taken argument with because I yeah, think it'll be eye opening. I I'd sent you the big changes, right? Like the big textual changes um, in an image so that you could compare the two after you'd finished the book just to make it easier. So you could kind of give this a read through, but what'd you make yeah. of Ellen standing in the mists? What'd you think of that moment? Just so him and like, the beginning of this section. Yeah. Yeah. I thought, I thought this was the point where, we're, where we were going to get Ellen snapping and like, I'd been waiting for that for a while. I don't know if I mentioned it that often, but I know I mentioned it before. You mentioned it at ex- least twice. Yeah. I was expecting Ellen to snap. And I, I really thought this was going to be the point where he like realized he had some allomantic influence. It made like it was set up to make sense, you know? So that's all I was thinking about my first read through on this was like, oh shit. Are we gonna get something? Is, is he gonna it, like gonna feel something weird in his brain? No. Not quite. Yeah, that's interesting. The actual snapping itself we haven't seen, you know, we right. haven't like felt or heard, so we don't really know what that's like. Good call. Mm-hmm. But to to get back to Ellen himself, he and Spook are walking in the darkness. Ellen spends a lot of time contemplating what he's managed to accomplish without Alamancy, which of course becomes important by the end of it again here. Claiming the kingship, protecting the Ska, giving them rights, and helping them taste freedom for the very first time. It's it's a great reflection on the accomplishments he's made so far inside of the novel. Yeah, but there there's a weird feeling in all of this because he's speaking from a place of outrageous privilege. Still, the entire time. But at the same time, he's trying to, like, come across as this meek, non-alamancer that was able to accomplish all this. Like, hey, like, I'm just this lowly, like, mundane person, and I was able to accomplish this. And, like, it feels like a weird, humble brag to, like, a certain crazy extent. Like, it felt cartoonish, in a way. Hmm. And I, I... I don't know what to make of it beyond that. Okay. So 
No, I don't holistically disagree with you. I, I can kind of understand that. It does feel like in some ways it it leads up to painting him as a character who could be on the chopping block, right? Like a character who of whom rehearses all the things that they've done well is a great trope to be like, that guy's fucked. Like that is, this is kind of the telltale sign of like, that guy's screwed. So yeah, I, I can I can get that kind of part of that and I can get some of the cartoonish expectations I don't know about you, but walking in the dark when you're afraid, do you ever like recite good things about yourself to yourself to like try to like, I feel like the thing about like walking when I was younger, I think this was more of a thing. I don't think this is a thing now, but like when you're in an area and you feel unsafe, I think the first thing I do in my own internal dialogue is I try to boost myself up as much as possible. In addition to questioning my surrounding, I'm like, what was that? Okay. I'm great. I'm going to be fine. I can outrun anyone. Like I am so fast. I was so fast. I won many awards in drag. I can run. I can, I can outrun anyone. I don't know. Do you do any of that? This is going to sound really fucked up. I hope there's something there. That is a different approach. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why. Like I, 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 not like I'm looking confrontation. Yeah. I don't know what it is. All right. Well, I don't. Yeah. I, and I, I can't. I can't parse it beyond that because there hasn't ever been confrontation. So I don't know how I'd actually react. I'm sure I'd be scared shitless, and I'm sure like all of that would just smack down to nothing. But yeah, like I, I was I, never like wishing to be back in the light. I was always wishing for something to like be there. I don't know. That that is the type of personality of people who die in horror movies. So yeah, that I mean that fits. Uh, you would be not the first one dead, but probably like second. Like I'll take second. <laughs> you'd check first the bushes is like when everyone's like, no, don't check the fucking bushes. Second's the one that like nobody remembers. I'm fine with that. Yeah, yeah, no. So I, I get I get a little <laughs> bit of that if that makes sense. Like I get a little bit of the like trying to boost him, himself up a little bit in the moment, and I get a little bit of the trope if that makes sense. Like a little bit of the from a writer writerly perspective the death trope but also look at it from spook's perspective of like what's the point of this conversation and i feel well, like with himself they're not really he's not saying this out loud he's thinking no, i suppose i suppose so yeah, yeah. spook yeah, is spook is just hearing him talk to the miss spirit and be afraid every once in a while he's like what the fuck did you say <laughs> are you okay you okay bud you good, good dude yeah 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 you're right also, Spook doesn't see the misspirit or sense him whatsoever. Oh. And he's got tin burning. I didn't catch that. And hmm. he does say that he he can detect and knows what miswraiths are. And he's like, oh, it was probably a miswraith, you know, like. But was confident. Yeah. About like, uh, there's a miswraith following us. Not like, yeah. oh, it was probably just a miswraith. It was, it was more rooted than that. Hmm. Things to think about, shit to consider. To to speak to that point, Ellen is noticing some spooky action at a distance in the mist, seeing things move and swirl, and swears he can make out a figure of a person in the mist. The mist spirit points, trying to direct Ellen as best he can, and even pulls on his emotions with allomancy. What do you think the mist spirit is now? I guess is my primary question. And I just busted your brain open with a little the little spooky no. There's notion. there's I don't think this. Like my, my thoughts on this change based on that, but I am trying to wrestle with the idea of this being different than the, the mist spirit that's killing people that like says was interacting with that comes into question later too, and doesn't get resolved. So, but we'll talk about it then, but it's, 
it's like, it, are there multiple mist spirits and <clears throat> do they all have the same origin? Do they all have the same meaning or understanding? Like it brings that up to me and is it in line with or opposed to or separate from the entity in the well of ascension later on okay yeah i think as a prediction that's gonna be really fun yeah i i mean i i mostly just dove into the crux of my questioning <coughs> for later when says like on his way to the well that's that's where this thought mostly like comes into my brain yeah it's it's hard for me to ask you to make any prediction without taking in the entire text into consideration at this point so you know i am yeah i think it's reasonable to pull on the end text now to make predictions so i thought you'd get a kick out of spooky action at a distance yeah spooky i'm assuming you know do you not know that's that's quantum entanglement it's called was originally referred to as spooky action at a distance I'm not familiar with that, actually. Oh, yeah, it was Einstein was talking about quantum entanglement originally, and he just so it's based on Bell's theorem. And yeah. Einstein just referred to it because he, he couldn't fully work it out. He was like, it's just spooky action at a distance because of the way that they like flip, you know, how how quantum entanglement works. So yeah. he called it spooky action at a distance. So it's a perfect example. Moniker. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just had not heard that actually before. Oh, yeah. That's that's the term. That's yeah. awesome. So I like I layered that in with this idea of the two spirit thing that you were talking about. I was like, come on, you got to get it right. You kind of no. you kind of see it. OK. All right. Well, for all my science, homies I wish I had aren't PJ right now. All <laughs> I you did the science nerd joke. <laughs> other other physics majors that maybe have more pop culture understanding of einstein that's not than e- I that's do. not even a pop culture that's a that's a straight up that's in papers anyway i'm yeah yeah like i know I'm, it <laughs> i'm sure okay moving on Spook, <laughs> of course jumps back into the conversation and informs us that there are refugees that have been streaming away from the north they make their way to an, the odd camp and discuss that the synod of the terrorist has been destroyed by the inquisitors as well as Tathingdwen, their home as at large these people revere the last member of the Synod, Tindwill, and are seeking to head south and offer themselves to both King Ellen and to her for assistance in Luthadel. What do you think of this sort of migration of people and like even the numbers of people that are here? What, what were your thoughts? And the Inquisitors doing this? God, that's a lot of questions. It is like three questions, yes. So there was a rationalization for why Ellen hadn't run into them before. And I don't know enough about the actual uh, geography of Scadriel to to know if that explanation holds any water. But Ellen seemed happy enough with that explanation. The of, canalways versus the like a straight as the crow flies, right? Yeah, is the explanation. Yeah, yeah. but they said he they <clears throat> didn't take the canalways, right? Correct, because they take longer than going straight as the crow flies. But right. all the people are right. so used to taking the canal ways that, you know, she's used to it. Totally. As far as the Inquisitors killing people, this is this is the one the one comment that ruins my uh hypothesis that I'm going to pose later on. I don't think it ruins it to the point where uh where I'm going to abandon it, 
but it does prove it wrong a little bit. Okay. And that's the idea that the Inquisitors have the ability to kind of go a little bit incorporeal and walk amongst the mist and kill people as And that comes from the comment from Marsh <coughs> later on where he says that he's killed so many people in this like last two years. And I feel like if that were the case, as is Steel Inquisitor, we'd have more mythology around it. But if they're if they're if they look like mist, maybe that doesn't matter as much. So this pushes back against that thought a little bit. The last thought I have about this section is something that's a little bit sneaky and it goes unaddressed for the rest of the book. And that's that Ellen does not reveal who he is, even though they're talking about King Ellen, which I found a choice to be made. So, yeah, for for me on that final note of which is the one that I, I feel the most ready to comment on. I think that part of that is Ellen doesn't want to deny them hope. First yeah. and foremost, and I, I think that's the big point. But, but he doesn't he does. lie to them at all. Otherwise, no, right? Which he could have. That and I don't. That's why I think it's not. It's not entirely the correct answer, if that makes sense. But it is a rationalization. Yeah, I suppose so. The yeah. things that would have given them more hope, though, or the the things that he could have hid to maintain their hope, mm-hmm. would have been. The fact that the city's been attacked, I, I, I think first and foremost that that the city's yeah. been attacked in general is like the only thing that he could have withheld to keep them more hopeful. That's a fair point. It's also to that point, thinking about this a little bit more, too. It's an interesting juxtaposition to think about earlier in the chapter when he was recounting all of his successes to himself. And in this moment, he kind of feels like a failure. Because, like, the news hasn't reached them, but he is no longer king. And so that feels like a personal failure. He's the deposed yep. king. Yeah. So maybe that's a part of the reason why. I, I, I don't disagree with your, your former answer and recant on uh, So on my... maybe he's not actually being duplicitous at all in that he's talking about, they're talking about King Elland. And he is not King Elland at this moment. Yeah. I don't think they ask him his name, have, do they? They don't. Yeah. That is a retroactive kind of bullshit uh, justification for his actions there. And I don't think it's the truth. And I, I don't think that's what he was going for. But there might be a grain of truth to it. I don't yeah. know. I can, I can understand that. It's a fun idea to to dig into at the very least train of thought to to travel down yeah i understand that so before the end of the chapter spook fixates on his sensitive sensitivity again and the way it's growing to kind of encompass campfires and the like and all of these various smaller forms of light i wanted again to bring up something that we didn't really talk about last week but in knowing and keeping the secret that clubs had told him as to why they were going away he also knew that his uncle would be dead and that it, it would be the last time that he talked to him. I'm sure that this also played a part in why he framed himself as a coward consistently throughout that section. But there's also something to this, this sensitivity, you know, yeah. clearly. 
Spook is in such an impossible situation, man. Like, ignore the fact that he's a 16-year-old kid. Like, just be a be an adult and be a responsible, well-adjusted, mature adult, and it's still an impossible situation to be in. So he is handling it very, very well, but he's also taking, like, he's beating himself up over it more than he needs to, and that makes it more difficult to just, like, everything that's happening is more difficult for him, and simultaneously he's able to handle it better than I think anybody could. So, yeah. Bravo, right. Spook. I'm sorry you Bravo, have to deal Spook. with this. We greatly appreciate your your efforts. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's definitely a thing. Cool. With that, we go into chapter 57. We've got our logbook here. It is a distant hope. Alendi has survived. It is a distant hope. Alendi has survived assassins, wars, and catastrophes. And yet, I hope that in the frozen mountains of Terrace, he may finally be exposed. I hope for a miracle. I enjoy how this text starts blank enough that it, for the most part, feels like we're in a detached position when we move into kind of the scene that we move into in the in the room as the arguing among leaders is going on. But that's because, of course, we find ourselves in Sazed's position, and he's really not there at the moment. He's He's like, knock, knock, no one's home. Beyond not being there and not wanting to be there at all mentally, Sazed, between his two opportunities in the novel, has also proven to not be the best leader and at best makes a decent mediator in these kind of moments. What would you make of mm-hmm. this this kind of scene, this intro? I think the way that you've put it makes... I, I don't think I have a ton to add to that commentary. But one thing I do have is something that we've accentuated a lot in Red Rising, but haven't done a ton of in this book series. And that's the phenomenal job that the narrators of the audiobooks do to convey this sort of feeling through passages like this. And I do not remember the name. Michael Whalen. Michael Whalen. Whalen. Yep. Yep. Michael Whalen. Great fucking phenomenal job of portraying Sazed and just the narration of this book in general. But I, I think that that feeling that you were expressing is duplicated and expounded upon in the actual audiobook for the same reasons. Yeah, exactly. And that's why it does feel when you listen to it, I think first, which is the way that I did it this time around as well as I listened to it. And then I went back and reread it a couple of times. It hit me as this sort of like static POV, which is fascinating. It was yeah, not something it, it's that like you've a fixed camera. Else. Yeah, exactly. Fixed camera is a great way of putting it. It feels in stark contrast and the and the prose does read that way when you read it, but it, it is definitely a boost that the narration gives it to give it that little that little like tweak that can make narration so powerful. Yeah. Almost C-SPAN. <laughs> Almost. Yeah, that's actually. Yeah. Yeah. yeah C-SPAN is a good way of putting it. It's numb. It's disconnected. Like mm. like our boy says it, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, he he is. Yeah, he very much is. But yeah, fucking phenomenal job. And is it cheating? I don't think so. I don't scratch that. Nah, like just, it's such a good, such a well done section. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and 
And I think another part to talk about here, of course, is the like army leaders that are chatting throughout the section, I think are also brilliant, brilliantly narrated to like be fighting around Seiza inside of this war room. And you can imagine a camera panning in on him and him just sitting there and like the voice is going from loud to dull as like it, it zooms in. You can kind of feel his pain in the moment. I can just I very clearly imagine that. And this evokes that for me. But as we as we move on into kind of the rest of the scene, the army leaders continue to squabble and like don't stop for pages. But I really appreciate Penrod's guidance that he lends to these meetings as he tries to calm everyone else down at the table, looking at the system that Ellen has set up largely as a success that these men are largely inheritors of territories here. Provided they kind of stay inside of the lines that the Empress commands. Empress. Empress makes me feel weird. That's new. What do you make of Vin's assertion of power for both her and Ellen here? I don't know yet. And that might sound like a cop-out answer, but I don't think it is. Because we don't get an answer yet. Because there are two ways to take this. And both are equally likely. One of which is just respecting Vin for the position that she's in and the Mm -hmm. actions that she's taken and what she's done to bring this war to this conclusion and all of the other things that Vin has done, giving her respect, essentially. The other way to take this and... Weirdly, I find it more likely coming from Penrod that this title of Empress is entirely inherited because she's married to Ellen. And man, so to to back it up just a little bit, I agree with you on on your final sentiment, of which I definitely think makes sense. They're referred to as the ventures, I think, at one point by Penrod. But to to talk about just a slightly different section or just slightly different thought on this section Last week, we talked about how both Ellen and Vin viewed themselves as knives for the countries, the the state in different ways. And this mm-hmm. is her way is asserting dominance like this is she's the muscle, you know. And so, yes, she is. She is the empress by marriage. But in reality, this is kind of what like Straff wanted Zane to be, but they didn't have the symbiotic relationship, you know, I- to like really pull this off. I'm not trying to argue against that at all. No, I don't. I'm don't trying. I'm, I'm trying to. That in. Yeah, for sure. And yeah, I agree with you wholeheartedly. With you. Yeah. And I, I, more than anything, agree with my first explanation of what Empress meant in regards to Vin and why. But I'm trying to figure out what Penrod means. Oh, I think Penrod is like still a little bit stuck in his ways, like a little bit like there's there's definitely something there. And he finds what Ellen has done in government to be honorable, but respects Ellen in part because of Vin. You know, it's it's tough to parse. Definitely. Tough so. To parse. So what do you think he means when he says Empress? Do you think I, I mean, take I think he I'm sure I'm sure he, there are other answers beyond the two that I put forward. But which one do you think he leans towards? The patriarchal or the not matriarchal, I guess, but the the Vin centric. I think it's the Vin centric one. I think that he I think he leans that way. I think set is like where the power is, is where the power is. And I think that general is kind of more respecting the patriarchal side of things because he's kind of the last submitter, you know, in a way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's fair. Does that make sense? That's kind of where I view it. I don't know. I don't know if I agree with 
the Gennaro one, but I guess I, I don't know enough about him to disagree with it. Like, right, we don't I, have enough. We, yeah. I, I feel like we don't have anything on, on his inner workings. We, we know that Straff was worried that he would seize control, but we never saw if that was like a justified fear, you know? We know nothing about Gennaro, but I'm kind of excited to get to know him. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's got all the potential of a very interesting character right now. I can, I can agree with you there. So, and man, Sazed recounts the damage that's been done to Vin, you know, and kind of the, the way that she is being that she's been laid out. And one of the big ones is that she's been staying awake with Pewter for literally months now and had been dragging nearly the whole time. So she's been on a while we've been in her perspective, she's been on months long pewter drags. So this makes me think about kind of the mechanics of Alamancy in general again. And like we've been talking about the last couple of weeks, the strength at which you can burn something, which as we understand it is binary. It's on or off. So pewter dragging for that long hypothetically being hurt and like running and stuff shouldn't really change that. Right. It's just another day of pewter burning, Mm -hmm. but she's, she's becoming more fatigued and she's doing more strenuous activity. So I guess maybe that argument falls apart. You burn at the same strength, right? Like your, your strength doesn't change because it's all proportional, right? Like it's not, it's not like compounding is for ferrochemy where you can like throw more out at once, right? Like there's no, there's no nuance to burning a metal outside of like turning it on and off. Like you're saying that's, that's where the nuance lies. And with pushing and pulling, using your weight to your advantage, like pulling intentionally on certain things versus other things. Mm -hmm. So the, the nature of pewter dragging then is implied to just be an extended use of pewter has a negative impact on so how does flaring work in that respect? flaring is just i would think that flaring is turning it on and then turning it off quickly like that is like a boom boom that's not how it's described though what do you mean like i feel like it's described as a situation where it's already in use and they flare it to burn it stronger and I, I know that's not the mechanics that have been set out, but that feels like the descriptions that were given. And I'd have to look back and actually like look at text to, to see if that's the case or not. But there are situations where I feel like she's already using a metal and she refers to as like she refers to flaring that metal to get a more granular or more intense sensation out of it. And I might be talking out of my ass, but that feels like the way that it's been described. You're not wrong. It's been described precisely once in the seven books, and it's in Mistborn chapter seven of the first book. Flaring grants more power, but the reserve of metal depletes much faster, too. However, there is a set rate at which it depletes. So it is. It's not as though they can pick like compounding. You can use a lot more, but it is effectively burning slightly more for a slight enhancement okay. at a faster rate. So everything is that else a mistake? Is well, it may have been, but it is actually a part of the system. It's canon, but was it intended to be? 
I think the reality, Brandon talks about this a couple of times, like he technically messed up the placement of one of the medals in the way that he wanted it to be like counter to pro. And he's like, I just adopted the mistake into, into Canon. Cause that's what you have to do at a certain point. Can't go back yeah. and fix it because there are too many copies out there in the world. So generally speaking in positive external force, natural. I can't read all this out loud. Oh, good. Otherwise I just would. Isn't that weird though? Like that feels it, like a weird thing. It's not that weird. And I, it actually helps some of this make more sense, but it does not fully justify other things that I cannot explain for you right now. That's fine. If that makes sense. This kind of is a raffo. I, I'm going to, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to raffo out of this. There is an explanation. You'll get <laughs> okay. it. You'll Fair get enough. it eventually, but it is important to clarify that flaring is burning slightly more of a metal. Okay. And yeah, it'll, it, that'll make sense too. Sounds good. Yep. I'm just going to cool. raffo out of this. Is <laughs> So perfectly I mean, you, I think <laughs> this will certainly get cut to make more, like be more concise. Crossland mm-hmm. just spent five minutes, like, googling stuff and like looking through his kindle version of things and like finding all these things that he couldn't tell me and then was mumbling to himself and says no i can't say that out loud and then he he just says i'm gonna raffo out of this i i thought it got resolved in this novel originally until we were like three quarters of the way through and i was like no it doesn't that doesn't happen in this book that happens in the next book my brain mm-hmm. exchanged an event for Jostie's death in between the books gotcha yeah because last <laughs> week you told me that I don't know if that made it to, to final cut, no, it did. you it told did. me, yeah. okay. Yeah. You said it, you thought it was next book. Yeah. I, I thought that Ellen killed him when he was a mistborn. I thought that Ellen did a similar thing that Vin did to Straff, but, to, but he did not. So nope. I thought that he hunted him down, but I was just wrong. a, just a mortal beheading. Nope. Yep. Exactly. Fairly, fairly standard. That was a strong hiccup. Okay. Moving on from my my <laughs> Raffo here, but I, I do want to at the very least mention that like Vin has been pewter dragging for a very long time. Like she is. Yeah. Flaring to some degree, we could say, is the basis for Duralumin's adjusted strength, like an adjusted strength Duralumin. But no one can flare. Let it be clear. No one. If you and I were both mistings or mistborn, my flare of pewter would be just as strong as your flare of pewter. There's still no nuance in the ratio of power does that right, make sense but if, if, if i'm burning pewter and you're yep. burning pewter it has been described as you are at an even level but if then you Unless flare pewter so th- there are two levels then yes yes so burning is not the same as flaring okay. that is that is a distinction but if the other person were to flare pewter they would be at the exact same level as you were. Are you, I guess this so there's is a another question. Nuance. There's a time. Are you nuance. able to flare as a, like, are you able to flare if you're not a misborn? Have we gotten that answer? Has that, has that come up or is um, flaring like an explicit control attribute I, of a misborn? I don't know that it's come up. Okay. I don't know if it matters. I'll pay attention. It probably doesn't, but I'd be I'll, curious. I'll, like, I'll look out for it. Maybe it's Trace Duralumin or something that allows for something like that to happen. It could be. I could see that being a justification. That would be a fairly reasonable response. Yeah, part of, part of the reason that I think flaring is important as far as a description goes 
is because Vin has been burning pewter this entire time, right? If you look back at all of the references when I search flaring in this book, there are 70 references to the word flaring, and almost all of them are pewter. Almost all of them. Showing that she has been burning pewter this entire time to keep herself upright, moving well. And we can see that in the moment where she's like walking and she dances gracefully, you know, like all the way back in the dress shop. So. So there is the comment early on in Mistborn about addiction, essentially, without using the term addiction. This feels like the final stages of that process without seeing a tangible negative outcome yeah we haven't yet seen a negative outcome right i would agree but there is a question that's raised is spook going through a negative outcome of burning things for too long because he seems to have become more and more sensitive has he been burning more than vin has for longer tin specifically but yeah. It's a question oh, raised. That's, it's not fully. That's interesting. And I don't know if we can answer that in good faith. Nope. Because, I don't think well, uh, regardless, like, first of all, we don't have enough information. But second of yep. all, even if we did, a lot of it could probably be chalked up to the fact that he's going through hormone changes going from child to adult. Well, what would it be like to go through hormone changes as a tin eye? That'd probably be the worst. You're fucking terrible. That'd be the wow. All right. Ima- yeah. That, imagine that being me. so, so perceptive of whether or not someone can see your boner at math class. Oh my God. <laughs> 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 I was trying so hard to hold it together. <laughs> it's like you could do it. You could do it. You could do it. I was no, talking myself into it. I fucking couldn't. Ah oh, man. Yep. So we move back real quickly to Spook and Ellen traveling back to Luthadel, and they're just out of sight looking for a sign of whom is commanding of whom is in command of the city now. And they see that it is Ellen's flag that flies high over top the ramparts and gates. It's kind of a short moment, but I, I like the little the little shock here. Yeah. I was really expecting some more fan for, fanfare from Ellen regarding this, but there is kind of a tempering agent in his response in that it very well could be a very weirdly elaborate trap for him. But I was I was really thinking there'd be something a little bit more energetic in his response and there were, there really wasn't. And I don't know if it's just the weight of everything that's been happening and the situation that they find themselves in, but God, that's an exciting thing to find out. Right. And I feel like you can pretty easily extrapolate what happened from Ellen's perspective of, Hey, there doesn't seem to be fighting and my flag is on the wall. What could that mean? (laughs) Yeah. Vin succeeded and I'm king again is the only actual like response. Like what else could be the rationalization other than elaborate ruse? I feel like this is like we're we're talking right now about like maybe a page (laughs) in total. But to, to that point, I think that there is so little espoused here that it is left 
kind of unclear even to as to what he's considering. It's more of what's so fascinating to me about some of this window dressing writing is that it leaves some of these emotional questions on the table, right? So we we instead are left to contemplate like what's going on in his head sometimes. So yeah. yeah. I agree with you. Like there the these are the two things that should be debated out in the open and it could lead to a longer book if you were to do so. You have four of such longer books in which characters contemplate things more adequately on your shelf now. Adequately, that was a little bit of a brash statement, but you understand <laughs> what I mean. There's, you know, he has permission to go as long as he wants to some degree. So that's fair. I, yeah, I just it feels I, like I feel like choice. this would have at the very least prompted a task for Spook to go find more information. And it doesn't. Yeah, yeah, it does. It does feel, you know, in in a very like game Game of Thronesian way. You can imagine this being like a okay. We need to camp out in the woods and like figure out and make sure that there's nothing duplicitous going on. Like, yeah, I don't want to walk into a trap. So it does feel like you would have another scouting update. But at the same time, the reason that we probably don't get that is because we already had a climax of the Battle of Luthadel. It would be kind of. It would be. Like we're approaching a novella at the end of this book to like get in an appropriate response. You know what I mean? Like in order to ratchet up and tie off some of these parts. So, yeah, it's true. I get why, but I also can see why in a miniseries you would make that a big deal. You would at the very least make it a a thing. Hashtag miniseries. Hashtag Mistborn's movie, Well of Ascension is a miniseries, and you could split the Hero of Ages into two movies if you wanted to. Make it the Avengers. I think I think instead you do You could just do three seasons of TV. It'd be three fun. seasons of TV, but not necessarily split it entirely. I, I can't speak to obviously the third book, but uh the first two seasons of the TV show, I think you go First season, Mistborn, into Well of Ascension. Ah, what point? I think you end the. I think you end the series at the Battle of Luthadel, and then you start season three here. Then you have a season four end. So you like split. Well, you like add part of Well into Hero, and then you split Hero into two. So you've got four seasons. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. So you've got like a third of well that becomes, or not a third, but like this last part of well, the last 60 pages, part six, you could extend it and then add like 70% of a half of hero and, and then use the other half for the last season. Yeah. And it would be an abbreviated season a la like Game of Thrones. Like you would, you could tell the rest of that book in like six episodes. So like season four would be shorter, but it would be satisfying. Does that make sense? It does. I mean, it'll make more sense when I actually... Yeah, yeah, when we get there, when we get there, we'll talk about it. <laughs> Alloy of Law is a movie. Shadows of Self is a movie. Bands of Mourning is fucking four seasons of television. Just, there's so fucking much in that book. Yeah, cool. All right. Anyway, let's move onward. We cut to a depressed season. Flipping through the manuscript and debating the Hero of Ages, realizing in some ways that this was her final work, Tindwill's final work. And Tindwill, like... You noted several of the contradictions that seemed to be apparent within these pages. It's kind of locked in. He's he's locked into those same ideas as he's contemplating them. Just like you were. You were thinking about this the whole time. And I was like, well, you're close. <laughs> you're close, damn it. <laughs> um, especially early on. 
But with our knowledge of the end, it's where we also see that some of the most obvious alterations of the logbook that we'd been reading as we went along, that of the announcer swapped for the holy first witness. You know, we'll we'll talk about more of this as we get to the epilogue, but Sazed's condition and reflection here, I think, is more of the focus for me in this section right now. What what do you make of his kind of state? What thoughts do you have? I mean, first and foremost, I think you're giving me way too much credit as far I'm not as saying you keyed into the logbook specifics, because that didn't happen. But you did read into contradictions almost right away. Yeah. And by that, not necessarily the logbook contradictions, but the contradictions with Condra and the Condra rules and some of the other things that like came along with that. You were always suspect of this and you kind of you toned into the du- dual tone. Yeah, I just thought it was two different texts. But this is kind of the point where I started thinking about the mechanics of Farrakami and the copper mind in general, I feel like especially on multiple read throughs. Like this is where that starts to to crop up a little bit. And it made me really realize that copper mines, is this the right point to bring this up? I I brought this up in the discord a little bit and I I don't know if you read it. No, I I did read the, the copper mine comments that you're making. Do you think I, I bring that up here or do you think I save that? For a different I think it's section. I think it's kind of a final reveal bit. I feel like this comes right at the end to some degree, you know? Okay. I mean we, we yeah, can talk I, about it now too, but because it is kind of there's a bit of that here. I mean, we're we're not like people aren't holding their breath to see what happens in the story. They already know what happened. <laughs> right, right. So I guess I can I can bring up the mechanics that I'm thinking about here. And I, I'm thinking about the fact that this copper mind is as the name suggests, an external mind. It's not a text. As I was understanding it, I understood it as like a text that could be referenced and read, but it could also then, in that scenario, be memorized. You know? Mm-hmm. Like it, it, it was essentially something that could be read and memorized. And in this situation, the way it seems to actually exist is it is an external memory that can be accessed but doesn't bleed over into your own memory at least not in any real way especially like looking at how Sazed has to really rack his brain to understand why is this sticking out in my my memory a little bit like yeah the holy first witness in like like why why is that Something that's weird because, because all of his knowledge of that exists on an external memory. It's not stored within his actual brain, which is why Quan is so integral. Yes. To right. this. Because, because he has his, that identity. He has a photo. Yeah. An identity. Identic. Identic. Yeah. I keep saying identic. <laughs> yeah. But, no, it's, it's very easy. And, and so, the mechanics are so cool, Crossland. I'll tell you this what, man. This is so cool. Um, <laughs> it's so you, fucking you've, cool. You've keyed into something that is hinted at, but never explained inside of the the trilogy here as it is. And but you're right. Like you are, you are correct entirely according to Brandon. So good shit. Okay. Um, which is that there is 
there is a layer there that exists with, where like Quan's importance is very, very Quan's importance to the story is obviously incredibly relevant and important. And the only reason I bring this up is because we're at the end. Like I and I can I can tell you I will tell you more words of Brandon or whatever when we're at the end. But it it is it is stated that the there's something with the the copper mines that you're keying into that makes a lot of sense with the other kind of manipulations that we're seeing and how they're stored memories in kind of a similar way to the way that handwriting is. But there's there's something about the transfer there that's that's different. That's off. So you've keyed into something incredible and important. Yeah, and, and like, and it's so cool. It's so cool. It's so cool. It's so fucking yeah. cool, Crossland. Yeah, Farrakimi. It's so fucking like, cool. Everyone comes because Alamancy is like super cool and fancy and like nah. very flashy. Farrakimi is where it's at. It's so fucking cool. So Vin arrives in the room and startles Sazed, wherein they have a frank conversation about the Hero of Ages and the well and what it could mean and how Vin is being pulled by it. And Vin explains a theory you posited last week and how it could be possible that the well was moved here when the Lord Ruler held power. I'm going to drink for that prediction for the record about the location of the well of ascension right now it felt like a fairly obvious question but sometimes you have to ask the obvious questions to make the predictions fair so cheers it felt like the answer yeah i I, you know sometimes with the way that you take things so literally i thought that you might have taken the we searched everywhere and critic sean could not find anything answer very literally but i thought you Um, might which is part of the reason i asked no, there's there's that like that's. I thought fair. maybe you might have thought the conventicle of Saren. Like I thought maybe you might have like been like maybe it's there. I I I could have been persuaded if you had brought that up, but I sure I didn't bring it up in my own mind. The one thing that's still sticking out in my brain is something that I haven't gone through and actually like confirmed or denied for myself, and that is the directionality of the pull and beat of the well that that vin feels in her brain because i feel like it was very clearly directional in the way that she described it and so i understand the idea of it being kind of her justifying to herself saying like yeah i know this isn't in the north so it feels like it's pulling me north but later on, we get very, very clear directional Rafo and fuck you. <laughs> I, I will tag in. I'll tag in a little bit of information, though. So Rafo plus we do understand that the power in the well has been growing since the Lord Ruler used it last. So it is becoming stronger as we've approached this moment. Rafo. I mean, plus yeah, that. all I'm saying is Rafo plus that I'm giving I'm giving you something to think on. I'm not, I'm not answering. That, I'm does, not, not that answering. doesn't make direction change. Uh, maybe, maybe. Okay. There are two wells. One of them's in the oh. terrace mountains. Interesting. And the other one decided to get stronger and overcome it. That's my current working theory now. Fascinating. Fuck you. All right. Oh, okay. All right. So, do, do, do. So there, there's this moment in this line that happens here when, when they're having this conversation about the Hero of Ages that just, it strikes me, right? So, Sazed opened his mouth to object, but could find nothing. He had no faith. Who was he to argue with such things? 
And this is such a sad moment in line for our man who is filled with these righteous competing contradictions who could live with them and make sense of them and utilize them in unique ways and kind of wield them as a weapon of hope to to like help people and, you know, kind of bring them a sense of peace and harmony is just kind of buried under grief now. And all of that is it's gone. Says it. It's so fucking crazy. Just how emotion provoking 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 provocative or provoking yeah this section is 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 just despair incarnate <laughs> you know like it, it is it is one of the most visceral character progressions that i've ever experienced Ellen arrives and Vin and he make a break for the well. We see Ham briefly, obviously having survived the ordeal. We quickly move back to Sazed, who notices something blowing on the floor. A scrap of paper from before. That sentence, that critical sentence that Elendi must not reach the well, for he must not be allowed to take the power for himself. What'd, what'd, you, what'd you think? So genuinely, generally, I tend to try to take my like initial reaction on something. I do not remember what my initial reaction on this was because I don't mm-hmm. think it was memorable. I, I, I feel like it probably, it, it didn't stick out because it wasn't important. This is, this is only important understanding what happens later. Sure. So after reading it several times, this is such a cool moment and it just cascades yeah. into the revelations of the text later on in this in 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 the end of the book so i i wish i i wish i had taken stock of what i actually thought to begin with yeah it's it's definitely a what it's a moment that you like don't expect anything from in a lot of ways like it is it is a moment that feels unassuming but at the same time well not unassuming entirely because you know the paper is important but you don't really understand the importance of the paper and like you you're you're like what okay what the fuck does that mean what the fuck does that mean and then once you know what it means, it just it hits you like a ton of bricks, you know? Yeah, exactly. So Vin and Ellen continue on their way to Critic Shaw, and Vin notes that she feels pulled by the mist through the well. But Ellen counters, saying that they look as though they're flowing away from her. Do you have any thoughts on this? All I can really think about is that the mists and the cr- like the mist creature aren't as closely related to each other as we're like led to believe in a positive way in general. I don't know. This is the section that makes me think about the directionality of the pull for Vin and how it Mm -hmm. seems to be very intentionally directional here. And it was earlier. I feel like, but maybe I'm, I've been intentionally misled and I don't know. I don't know. It's a hard thing to parse, and we don't quite have the answers yet. You know, we're we're at a difficult crossroads. It's it's not really, you know, it's not really addressed at this point. Yeah, and but it is a question. It's looming. It's so prevalent that it feels like it's intentional that it hasn't been. And I'm pretty sure, based on our conversations back and forth, that it hasn't actually been contradictory. It's just been misleading mm-hmm. intentionally. Sure, sure. There's some consistent rule set. It's just that you're unaware in like behavioral pattern. You're just unaware of how exactly that functions. Exactly. Yeah, that makes sense. We move back to Sazed, who is fixated on the problem with the journal and is trying to work out 
what is scratching his head wrong with this holy first witness business. When the mist spirit shows up, it points insistently, attempting to guide Sazed when he hears a scream outside. So I've got a couple ideas. Mm-hmm. And one of which is that this misspirit killing people is different than the misspirit that we're interacting with here. That's like directing our protagonists. So th- that's kind of in my mind been a thought. And this kind of breaks that a little bit, but I don't think it necessarily breaks the. So it it, it almost feels like I know Sazed will not leave his post unless there's something urgent that happens. And I'm a misspirit. I don't give a shit about individuals. So let's find the most screamy individual that's on the street. Wait until they're right in the direction of where, where I need Ellen to go and let's fucking kill him. And that makes this make a whole lot more sense, you know, like this mm-hmm. is, this is a coordinated killing of an individual as a means of getting Sazed up and out. I don't know. I mean, yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I get it. I get it. Yeah. It's, it's a way, it's a way to push his action, right? It's a way to push him to make a change in this moment. So I can totally understand that. So after that, we we move into the actual investigation that's going on inside of Critic Shaw, of course, with uh, with Vin. Vin pulls down the wall and proceeds with the team down the tunnel, down the stairs. They find food and a map, but that's not what Vin is here for. She ignores it and continues. They even say like there's a city name there that is circled. What do you think? Yeah. What, what do you think? God, there's so much that is going to become important. I'm sure. I know. I, mean, I Lord know Lord it will be. Canned food? You know, like the Lord Ruler had canned food down here near the Well of Ascension? Like, what? I mean, there's that. That's something to definitely dig into. But understanding that this metal imprint of text mm-hmm. is so critically important to what's going on and to the history of like why things are the way they are makes me believe that that sort of level of information and that dissemination of information also extends to maps to, to pictures. So this map the cannot, the, the cannot be fucked with rule. You mean the cannot be fucked with rule. I am. Okay perfectly happy with adopting that and using it going forward i haven't like i hadn't even put pen to paper in thinking about what to call it but the cannot be fucked with rule Mm -hmm. is perfect so this is a map stamped in metal that if we are to assume it follows the same rules as olendi's metal writings that means that this cannot be edited. And that's important because as far as we can tell, mountains, mountain ranges can be created and destroyed with the ascension of a new hero of ages. If we want to follow the same terminology that we've been using, which may or may not be a straight up farce, but sure. 
using those terminologies. If you are to grab and absorb the power from the well of ascension, you can do insane things. You can control the world. You become a god. So a map written in a way that cannot be edited becomes Mm -hmm. extremely important. Yeah. So I think this, this plaque, this plate will become an imperative part of a future book. Yeah. And you know, to, to that point, it's, it's kind of interesting because it feels like, you know, there's, there's a, a sort of addiction that goes with Vin's, um, kind of pose and stature towards getting to the well, right? Like it's, it is an overwhelming desire, which is where I kind of pull on, pull on the addiction throttle. And, and so she overlooks all of these things around her just to get her there to where she needs to be. And, you know, can you like at this point with what we know about the Lord ruler, you feel like he might've written like a warning, or like something, you know, <laughs> he doesn't seem like the guy at this point, as far as we're aware, who'd be unprepared for what's coming next. You know, you'd think so until he got stomped. By but a he was kiddo. unprepared for Vin. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, it's it's fascinating, man. And it's definitely a seed that's planted here. I'm glad. I'm glad that that was kind of your your read on the whole thing. So appreciate it. It's just so cool. There's so much to talk about. I'm very excited. So. Sazed is did you have anything else there did no i think i think i'm okay cool all right Sazed is outside with the miss spirit and just like at the beginning of the story we begin to witness death death everywhere as the mist themselves seem to be killing people in the streets Sazed focuses on the direction he's told to go by the miss spirit and heads to critic shaw but when he arrives he's accompanied by another familiar thing we haven't seen since the beginning of the story that, of course, is Marsh. And Marsh wants our boy dead. Man, Marsh. It's so easy to forget that. I, no, it is. It is easy to forget that. So, speaking of, like, before we talk about Marsh, Sazed and the Miss Spirit, and what is Sazed actually motivating Sazed here? Mm-hmm. Is it the misspirit in and of itself, or is it the the screaming outside of his window and the death that I, I don't want to say follows him, but that he follows the entire time? Like there there is death that he is constantly following. And is that is that there for him? Like is that his motivation set forward by the misspirit, or is it serendipity? In the most macabre that is so, way. That is so grim. I was going to say, I was like, that is that is insanely grim. And macabre, I think, is a perfect word to use to describe it. But 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 that's a that's it's a, it's a, a reasonable question. question, right? Yeah, totally. totally. Like, it's, it's a real and reasonable question. This doesn't, like, the misspirit itself doesn't feel like it's tangible enough to cause movement from Sazed. Sazed is driven by people. Sazed is a people person. So pairing the two, like at the same time, I don't think he would leave his home or his study for a scream out in the night. 
But the two of them together, the curiosity and the care together, will drive him in the direction that both of them are 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 pushing. Yeah, he's not necessarily Batman. You know, like he's not gonna like hear a scream and of go immediately jump to action to save every individual do? person. Well, right, right. I mean, we know um, we know later that he can do a lot. He could do a lot. <laughs> yeah, we we even kind of know some of that from the the battle of battle for Luthadel. Rather, there is a there is such a a character demand on Sazed in this moment to break from his depression, to become a man of action, to take the right steps, to try to save the world with a prophecy that he doesn't even fully fucking agree with. Like he doesn't believe in it. He just thinks that maybe something is wrong. And the reason that he trusts it is because it's in Tindwell's handwriting, because it was Tindwell that did the work, not because of anything else. And he's, he's faithful. Well, and because he remembers it that way. Yes. Right. Yeah. The memory plays a part here too. All, All that I'm saying is like a lot of, a lot of his backing here is like, well, it wasn't just me. It wasn't just my belief. It was someone else's. It was Tindwell's. I feel like that thought is less about justification for what he's thinking and more about his propensity to love Tindwell. Yeah. Okay. Hmm. This this is less about like Tindwell's interaction with this is less of a motivation forward than it is just a simultaneous reflection of what he's been working on and a maybe it maybe it is a nudge forward i i for, think it's important like, because i've been he's working on this religion yeah so deeply you know like he's broken with religion so deeply that tindwell is important to his rationalization here but i i agree with you almost holistically I just think that that is one thing to consider inside of this is the only reason that he has faith in what's going on around him, even despite even the Praetor supernatural signs that he's seeing in the form of the Miss Spirit and the paper returning is is Tindwell. He's got all the evidence and he's he's even turning down evidence to some degree. It yeah. leaves us in a fascinating, fascinating position. What what about Marsh? What do you, what do you make of like Marsh's reappearance in the story here? I feel like Marsh is. It feels like an interlude, you know, like it it doesn't feel final for Marsh at all. And honestly, it feels like it could have been anybody else. It could have been anything else. And I don't feel like it was earned to have Marsh here because he Mm. is dispatched in a way that's not final and his fight isn't meaningful either. It's just a delay for Sazed. You know, interesting. Like, yeah, I mean, I I see Marsh. If if we think about the the kind of net equation with the Inquisitors, I see Marsh as an emotional tool against someone like Sazed. But other other than that, I think you're right. I think right, that but it's immediately pushed against and like that that emotion that emotionality that emotionality is entirely circumvented. Yeah, it takes a back seat. It takes a back seat when we get to the combat for sure. Yeah, which is uh, the only reason why it would exist to begin with in my eyes. So, it felt weird combat? to be here. No, the emotionality. The fact that it's Marsh doesn't make yeah. sense to me. Well, in the way that it all goes. I I think other than think other than think- other than a reminder for the fact that Marsh is still in existence. But uh, 
I think that it's also if if we view the high level of what's going on with the Inquisitors, they're being incredibly violent. The the book is bookended by the the spirits killing people or like the mist killing people at the same time as it's also bookended by Marsh leading. I, I mean, yeah, literally but, leading says it astray, but make it car instead. Well, car's dead, but I understand. I understand. Oh, was car dead? I didn't, yeah, I don't, car got I don't his, remember. Car him got dying. a spike pulled out of him in the back. Of he, the, that yeah, was, that was book. car. Okay. Okay. Yeah. But I, I think the reason that you do with Marsh is because at the very beginning of the story, it's Marsh and, and says it trusts Marsh. Kind of innately, but there's not him there's not enough of a payoff here for that to like come full circle i think okay this is this is an addendum kind of thing but if, if we think about the plot from the perspective like the entire plot of the book from the perspective of marsh being the one that basically instigated the incorrect prophecy of the hero of ages he's kind of the the whole fucking problem here yeah that's kind of his fault you know what i mean that's a good point so like i think i think it makes sense from that perspective but i think to tag into that the only reason that says it went there to begin with at the very beginning and this is part of that difficulty with managing two climaxes because it feels like we've we climaxed the inner 500 pages of this novel and right now we're climaxing the outer 200 pages to some degree is that we really kind of have to make some like big logic, not logic jumps, but big jumps in storytelling that has just had like little seeds planted, but hasn't been fully paid off because the seeds have been the, the journal entries this whole time of which have been lying to us. And so then we have to infer that it's Marsh. That was the liar from the very beginning. Yeah, that's fair. Good point. Okay. I'm with you. And, I really think this only comes with like with an eye for like looking specifically for that. I don't I don't blame you for for not like putting that together because I think that this is this is one of the more difficult things in this novel to like throw together. And I think again, I think that this is my favorite novel in the series. I think that it has a lot of depth in the way that we're looking at it right now. But this is definitely the most difficult lens to like grab and hang on to. So Marsh, we have more to talk about him in the next section with them we move into chapter 58 we start with the logbook here of course alendi must not reach the well of ascension i assume you have nothing specifically to say here for the next couple of logbooks because they all tie together as one firm sentence I, yeah part. yeah it's all just one yeah yeah it's kind of it's the it, it at this point it is the it is the book revealing to us the reality of the logbook because these are true passages that are unaltered that contradict previous ones that we've read. So that said, this chapter is structured so that we have to talk about it reasonably and in kind of the way that I've structured the notes. The cuts here are very like movie like and TV show like in the way that they jump back and forth, but that doesn't work excellently for our format. So for some of these, we're kind of grouping them. So that we can hit on the thematic notes and kind of, you know, talk about it in our style. Grouping yeah. it by POV, of course. So per the way that the previous chapter ended with Marsh and Sazed, we pick it up there with Marsh and Sazed beginning to fight. But Sazed is unable to fight back. He's thrown around and on the verge of death, he realizes that the coins that Marsh had just flung at him weren't coins, but his rings. Embedded in his flesh, he calls upon a number of the powers to bolster him, including health in his gold, which saves, saves his life. And lets him literally throw his weight around inside of this fight. So 
There is a disembodied voice that tells him about the rings at this point. And it's not super clear what that is, but it's either his inner monologue that's just kind of detached from his consciousness at this point, or if it's somehow related to the misspirit that's guiding him, or if it's somehow related to Zane's God, or if all three of those options are entirely (laughs) interconnected, which is also possible. Or whatever permeations or permutations between those answers exist. Like, I don't know. I- okay, so this is one of those things where I, I love, what you, love what you said and everything else. I want you to highlight that a little bit and make it italic for a prediction because I want to log this as a, as a thought. So I think that it makes sense to do so here. I agree with you. I think that the disembodied voice is fascinating. Is it says it's internal monologue? Does it feel like a different voice? The narration certainly makes it feel like a different voice. So it's a, it's a question of what exactly that voice is, what it means, you know, mm-hmm. what could it be? Right. Zane's voice is very malicious. You know, it has, has a lot of malicious intents intent. Excuse me. Of course there's the misspirit, and then there's also this third voice. So, right. Yeah. That's, I mean, you know, I'm excited to talk more about it. Oh, I know. (laughs) I'm so excited to just leave you right there, right on the precipice. So, Vin and Ellen find themselves in a smoky cavern underneath Credit Shaw, where they finally arrive at the well, a white pool of light and energy, where we get a lovely moment between Ellen and Vin about their faith in her and what she'll do with the power. He says, Your eyes are beautiful, and part of the beauty in them comes from your sincerity. You won't become the Lord Ruler, Vin. You'll know what to do with that power. I trust you. I should say, this isn't when they come upon you. They can just see it in the distance, but... This is such a perfect moment when you view it from, like, their second, third, fourth read-through of the day. (laughs) It is a glorious moment. It's so good. It's so good. Yeah. Her, her like, ascending to, like, grab that, that godhood, that power... And then and then feeling that emotional trust, this is that thing that Zane lacked, right? This is the reason that she went with Ellen to begin with. And you just you can feel this culmination of that emotionality. And it's just it's so good. It's so good. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's the wrong fucking choice. But Uh, shit. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe great irony. (laughs) Like it's just we'll talk about it more when we get there. But yeah, the irony hurts when we get there. So, okay. We move back to Sazed and his fight with Marsh. We get more detail on compounding and how it specifically works to allow for the release of a lot of ferrochemical power at once, as opposed to using something consistently like Alamancy. Flaring, of course, excluded. Sazed <laughs> wields this advantage over Marsh in the moment, but quickly finds himself overwhelmed by the murderer until Ham's cane smashes into the back of his head and puts him down. Sazed then realizes that he has to rush to stop Vin before he takes up the power. He feels shaking in the floor on his way down and realizes that he is too little, too late. Yeah, this is some great timing with Ham. The biggest thing that I've seen about the scene is like, well, why didn't Marsh detect Ham? And it's like, well, if you pay attention in the previous scene, when Vin says she is burning like iron to detect things, she notices that Ham isn't wearing any metals which is important going into this scene. We move back to Ellen and Vin at the well. 
that silvery white metal like substance that it was made of when the that we that we talked about previously when the mist spirit reaches out and slashes ellen pulling him bleeding on the ground with that mortal wound what what do you what do you think what do you feel Uh, it doesn't even feel malicious at the moment you know right it's a weird interaction like the entire emotionality of it feels completely disjointed and there there's no malice and there's obviously the surprise and immediacy required from vin's perspective that we see this from i think right yeah yeah yeah, this isn't vin's perspective like there's emotionality there but this doesn't feel motivated in any sort of emotional way which like i i I keyed in on that my first read through i remember that explicitly i'm like what the fuck is going on because it didn't feel like it was a revenge plot it didn't feel like it was this thing's plotting for something and it's finally gotten its chance It, it it felt necessary in some way and given any other book that I've ever read, this would feel cheap. Hmm. But it doesn't here for some reason. It feel like maybe there's been enough good faith given to me to tell me, yes, everything that's happening has a rationale. And even though there might be a leap in emotionality in a decision made, there will be retroactive understanding of it and it'll make sense so are you saying a leap i'm just trying to confirm here are you saying a leap on the side of the miss spirit on on the 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 reason why ellen like first read through first read through entirely ellen getting getting gutted by this miss spirit didn't feel didn't feel like there was any driving factor for why he was getting killed here it it felt devoid of emotion and for some reason i was okay with it because i felt like there was enough good faith given to me from branderson about his his motivations for things happening obviously we get motivation later and maybe that's not confirmed but ignoring that just going from first reading, it felt unemotional, but not unsatisfying. Okay. Do you understand what I'm saying? I totally do because I had almost, I had a mirror reaction the first time and I'm trying to parse out, you know, I think, I think a big part of the reason that this moment works for me is that it feels as though this this spirit has been with us and the spirit has actually felt like a good thing in the end you know and then it feels like a betrayal and you're like whoa what the fuck is going on with the spirit like what what is up with the spirit suddenly changing its vibe and it adds that question that you'd posed before of like okay how many spirits are there what's their intent are, are there multiple do they like is the is the mist a spirit like how does this all work yeah i feel like this just layers into that mystery a little bit. It does. And it puts totally it. Sorry. It leaves Vin on this precipice of like needing to make a decision. Right. Which I think is, is the really important point 
part, eh, the really important point here is that Vin is faced with this really tough choice following the prophecies and to release his power within the well as the Lord Ruler was supposed to have done a millennia ago or to save her love. And I say supposed in quotes, of course, because as we know, this is kind of this is kind of some bullshit. <laughs> she grabs she grabs hold of the power and it floods into her. Her earring burns and she rips it out of her ear and throws it. On the other side of the power, she sees what Rashik did with the power and the disasters that it created when the voice comes to her and presses into her, prodding her to release it so that it so that it may control the mists and beat the deepness. But uh, this is a lot given that I'm like packing into the small mm-hmm. space. So break it down as you need to. But how'd you how'd you take? So all I want to break down is the earring. Oh, that's all I want. That's all I want to talk about. Because it is made apparent and made influential and important from this point forward. I, I'm I'm still of the opinion that she could be a Farrakmist in general and hasn't been like brought into those powers yet. I think that makes sense. I think thematically it makes a lot of sense. I think narratively it makes a lot of sense. There are too many explicit mentions of this earring, this goddamn <laughs> fucking earring, for it not to be super important. Because not long after this, right when she like decides to save Ellen, the first thing she does before she feeds Ellen the little bead of, of whatever the fuck, <laughs> she goes in and grabs her sash and her earring from the well. Yeah, that makes this so much more important than even I was describing it to be right. Yes. Does it? (laughs) Yes, absolutely. It does. Yeah. If it was less like if all she ever thought about was her mother, then this is understandable and like a character driven decision to grab the earring, a tiny floating bead thing from a hot tub before feeding a tiny floating bead thing to her dying husband. This is, I just want to know, man, I just want to understand what's going on. Do you feel like you've been held in the dark for a little bit too long? Maybe, maybe <laughs> if you, if you like hold me outside, I'm not going to glow. I know that for sure. You know, I, I want to bring it back. So I, I appreciate the focus on the earring, and I think that it makes for a very interesting conversation point going forward. I'll drag something out of that as far as a prediction goes or like commentary goes, because I think there is something with the earring. There's something to pay attention to there. It's been, you know, it wasn't made perfectly clear in the first book, but it's always been a highlight. You know, it's always been a highlight. And now it's a question of how important is it? What is it really? But I do want to, at the very least, roll back just a smidge and just talk about the choice that Vin has to make here, right? Like, that's incredible. That's ridiculous to put on any individual person. And the fact that she leans into, like, Ellen's ideology to, to like, pull out this I must be the hero, like, as though as he would be, is just such a heroic and valiant moment that I, you know, this one, this one beats me up a little bit. Yeah. There's... Branderson! I get that you need to maintain the idea that you can just roll your way through the end of a book and like resolve a whole lot of shit all at once, but things fall through the cracks. 
And Vin seems to be one of those things. Let me really get her perspective on this because it gets completely lost here. I just want, I want, I want to know what she's thinking here and we don't get it. What do you mean in the, in the moment where she's possessing the power? No, we get that. I just, I just, the aftermath, I guess is my issue is the, the aftermath is so removed from any perspective. And I guess we haven't gotten there yet. I'm just looking ahead. Yeah, no, we're we're not quite there yet. I'm I'm thinking more about the the hyper emotional part right now, right? Like this is this is the opposite of what you said. I was like, this is we're no, so no, inside. No, 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 you're you're right. I I was okay. I jumped ahead. I apologize. Yeah, right. Yeah, the line apparently gods can cry. I think that's uh, here, right? Yeah, that's that's right in this section. Is je- that yeah? Yep. Fuck. And, you know, she 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 makes that choice. She whispers, I love you and let's go with the power that's, you know, supposed to free the world of, of all this pain. You know, she gives away the thing that she loves the most, which is the person that she loves the most to help the most people that she can, just like Ellen would have done. And this all is capstoned by that that screaming sentence of I am free, which is just so there- fucking good michael whelan kills it again here there's a little bit of of just kind of ironic beauty here given that moment because we get proof tangible proof that vin is exactly who we need her to be right we get we get proof that vin is the most morally good that anyone can be in this situation in that she rejects any selfishness in, in the face of this potential. And it's like, she get like, it it, it spits in her face because of it. Yeah. Yeah. This is, this is a definition of being given the selfish option, choosing the good path and then being punished for choosing the good path. The the right choice is to right. be, but like it, it's the no win option. Like she cannot win here because we know, or at least I I feel like I know that Vin would be beating herself up for choosing the selfish op- selfish option selfish option here because she wouldn't know the outcome from being morally good, holy. And yeah, she'd and- constantly be thinking about what could be different here, even if even if it is the perfect outcome, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. It is. It is one of those things where it's just like there's no there's no real way to to lay a hand on this and like really kind of holistically sort it out. It's it's there. I have so many I have so many feelings here. One of them uh, that I must say is when the whatever's been set free says i am free it reminds me of jafar in aladdin 2 when he escapes the lamp uh, yes like, i am free yes it does it's it's a very similar <laughs> moment it's so it's, similar and and you could just imagine like the same smoke spiral as it like flies out of the you know the cave of wonders or whatever it is in aladdin 2 to wrap up the point on vin though she is she's faced with literally an impossible quandary 
Like it, it is so difficult to try to sort out the, the right thing to do here. And she does so on the basis of the moral paladin equation that we had talked about previously. Like she does the thing that is the most right for the most people as opposed to the thing that means the most to her. And man, left with an impossible choice and technically a, a there is a win and a lose scenario here, kinda. But in reality, she doesn't fucking know that. She can't know that. We just know that no. in hindsight. So everything's in hindsight. Yeah. Like, yeah. That, that's all I'm saying is like, it's impossible. You have to like really sit in her shoes. Yeah. It's such a, such a crazy, well-witten, 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 well-witten. so well-witten, so well-written. So well-written. I don't know. I feel like it stands on its own merits almost entirely. Like, I, I don't, I don't know what, what else I can say about it. Yeah, sure. I, you know, just to, to speak to the, the conceit of this whole thing, I guess we'll get to it at the end, which is the, the manipulation of prophecy and sort of the, the way that faith can mislead a little bit. We'll, we'll talk a, a little bit about that here to, to kind of wrap it up. Okay. Final chapter. We really only have two different components to talk about here. So the first is the logbook, of course, of which is a string off the previous sentence for he must not be allowed to release the thing that is imprisoned there. Now that the thing has been released, <laughs> we know via the logbook that this is this is like a uh, fuck <laughs> kind of a moment. So this this makes me really wish, and this is not your fault at all, but I wish I had really like maybe maybe this is something we can do going forward on like the end of books because I don't think it would be fair to do this all the time because I couldn't and I don't think it'd be fair to do this on times when it's only necessary because that would be a spoiler in and of itself but the last section of a book if I can go ahead and write my initial reaction to things as opposed to just my reaction after having read it three or four, ten times. I feel like would be a lot more insightful because I I just want to know exactly what I was thinking my first time reading through this. Because I can't I mean, remember. I think part of the answer there is that's that's part of the reason that I really like the the live reading channel. That's what I've been doing with future spoilers is like when I have a thought, I just vomit shit into that channel future yeah. spoilers of course which you cannot be in but i created current live reading with the theory that you could vomit into that channel with where we're at in the book because you wouldn't be spoiling anyone else so that's what i would do document him there because then you kind of have him to reflect on and talk about that's fair which is also what i've done as i've gone through additional stormlight books is go back and search my thoughts and be like hmm i think it's useful though i think that's kind of that's the that's the focus. That's the crux for me is kind of that. So that's what I would say. I'd say do it there. I'd love to get you questions ahead of time, but obviously this week was not the case in point for that. But I'll try better in the future for the end of books and stuff like that. Yeah. Okay. Maybe With maybe that. we'll get better at it. Maybe we'll maybe. have more time in the future. <laughs> I mean, we are gradually getting more and more time. I mean, we aren't 
most weeks we won't be crunched to do three episodes the same week so with that chapter 59 is a really short chapter that i think i can kind of summarize for the most part and we can talk about it vin is guided by the mist spirit to feed ellen a bead of metal at the center of a clay disc and as she does so he begins to burn pewter ellen is revived saved by the same spirit who slashed him mere moments ago this brings even further the curiosity to the spirit what do you think it is slash it could be we've, we've talked a lot about this but like you know it being uh, maybe the bead maybe being the spirit i think this is actually way more important than you're even making it out to be because i think this is in atm alloy okay and i think it's also the material of the linchpins created for mm. the inquisitors because gotcha. there is still that one line about Whoa. the material of of the spikes that uh-huh. has not been resolved so the more i think about it the more that means it is an unrecognizable metal uh-huh. which would meet like potentially match this and that would also fall in line with my initial thought and my initial guess i don't know if it was ever actually recorded or if i ever actually said it on here but talking to you my initial guess was that all the atm went to spikes for the steel inquisitors so if it i, I think you did say like, that i think it was recorded but I did. Okay. Yeah. So if if that spike, the linchpin back spike, is an atium alloy, that would use a ton of it, right? Yeah. So that's still my working theory. Yeah, it, it definitely would. So that, that does make for, for an interesting theory. You know? You know? Fascinating. Huh. All right. With that, we move out of that chapter. And into the epilogue of the book here, we've really only got a couple of things left to talk about. Sazed returns to the conventicle of Saren, where his journey in this novel began and reads off the real true metal slab. And we can finally piece together the lie that right away in the beginning of the novel, we were told never trust anything that isn't engraved in metal. This is so simultaneously satisfying and infuriating <laughs> yep. to have that note be so crucial to the entire story it's so fucking cool but god damn it like (laughs) this is one of the coolest moments i have ever experienced reading ever period at all i don't know what it is but this moment this reveal this like section is the coolest thing that i've seen i don't know why it's a real it's a real like mind blower, man. It uh, it's it's so funny because when you when you read the logbook after you're trained in the way that you read the first logbook, you're like, yeah, but what do, impact does this really have? Like you're left questioning the logbook at the very beginning, and then as you continue to read the logbook, you're like, what the fuck is going on here? Like I don't know what to trust. I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not. And then it starts to contradict itself, and you're like, this fucking thing. What the fuck is this shit? And you kind of like wag it in a direction. And then you hit the epilogue and you're like, fuck, 
I wasn't paying attention oh. to the right things. <laughs> I didn't put two and two together. Fuck, 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 fuck. It was right mm-hmm. there in front of my face. And that's the secret of a good mystery novel, because really this second novel is a political mystery novel in large part. The yeah. the novel, the book tricks you into thinking that the mystery is is the missing crew member. But in reality, it's the what the fuck does this logbook mean? Right. It's such a cool reveal. It's such a cool moment. And in the entirety, like getting the entirety of the logbook consecutive in those like two pages, two and a half pages is incredible when you read through it. And it logically flows and logically makes sense. And you can track this man's thoughts and the way that he kind of grew jaded with Lendy over time and wanted to communicate that to you and make sure that anyone who reads this in the future can understand why and why. The hero of ages must not reach the well of ascension or like anyone must reach the well of ascension. And that the hero of ages is a lie to begin with. We can talk about that more in just a moment. We move to Vin and Ellen on the wall looking over the city. You're just going to blow past that. <laughs> no, no, no. We're, we're going to talk about kind of the big because th- this is like this whole book is about prophecy and faith. And I want to give that its due time to kind of capstone the episode. We'll, we'll definitely talk about it. In just a moment. I just want to I want to wrap up the plot points. Our final plot point to that point is Vin and Ellen on the wall looking over the city. Ellen is now an Alamancer and Mistborn just like her. The book ends with the line, we're going to do what Kelsey or taught us, Finn. We're going to survive. What the fuck? I mean, I did. It's say so at the cool. Very it's so goddamn cool. I just I was so ready for him to snap and become some sort of alamancer and instead we got him being like fed a bead and he's suddenly mistborn and that's not like unsatisfying but it's just different and i like i was just really excited about him organically coming to to this Okay, so my issue with this, my my entire issue with this, of him becoming a Mistborn in this way, is that he is something that I talked about before, is that all of his issues he came at and overcame with this sense of, or uh, from a place of privilege. And instead of coming into these alimantic abilities like everybody else does through trauma. <laughs> he was basically unconscious and got fed a bead and now he's a misborn. Like, so even his alimantic abilities are from a place of privilege. Yeah. I'm, I'm seeing that man. That's, it's not a reasonable or not an unreasonable criticism. How can I find a satisfying redemption arc in this character? In what position can I put them in in order to get that? And that that's what I'm struggling with right now. Sure, sure. That that makes sense to me. I, I want to give you just a slightly different spin on that. And it's not to say that your spin isn't correct. It's just another another take. For me, I think of the experience of Ellen dying is one of him snapping in its own right. Right? Like he he experiences death and is saved by by this bead right of 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 a unique metal or alloy or whatever you want to call it that gives him these abilities right Mm -hmm. and so in its own right it kind of is snapping because it is a traumatic moment in which he is being 
pulled out of by additional abilities in the same way that snapping is kind of described. So similar but different, you know, like it's it's not right. identical. And I don't I, I actually I think I agree more with your perspective on it of like, OK, where is he going now, though? Like, where's the next step? Then I do what I was saying as far as rationale goes so that he can like earn it. Like, how does he earn what he what he's been given again? Because Ellen is the definition of being handed a number of things and then using what he's handed to like turn it into the best things for everyone else, which I, I think is noble. But to your point, yeah, it's still privilege. Yeah. And I, I wasn't trying to be so negative about it, but no. Yeah. I don't think you were, but there is that, there's that theme about there's a tinge. Yeah. I understand. I get it. I get it. All right. Mm-hmm. Last thing to talk about this week. We've got a lot that we can we can talk about more and wrap this up tomorrow to varying points for everyone listening. Next week, we can we can wrap up a number of these thoughts. But I, I want to end with kind of a brief conversation about what this whole book is about. Right. This this book is in a large way about religions and prophecies and their manipulation against people and how much control those words can really have over people when wielded against them generationally or otherwise. I, I just kind of want. We can, we'll definitely talk about this more tomorrow. I think at length we'll have time to talk about it, but, but some overview thoughts. So I guess being posed that question brings me to something that we have no right actually positing or diving into. And that is how Branderson himself actually feels about faith in general after writing this book. It is entirely none of our business, but I want to put myself in that situation to a certain extent. And I I want to sort of think about how this book could affect faith. Like, is this something where this is driven by faith? Like, what was this book born out of a relationship with faith or is it, something that was written and did it affect an existing relationship with faith? I don't, I don't, I'm not going to pretend to know. And I, I'm not going to pretend to have any sort of expertise to like lean into this, but idly that's something I'd be very, very curious about. And I don't know if he's talked about it externally. I know that Brandon Sanderson is a man of faith in general, or at least was when he wrote this. I don't know anything about him currently. He's he's still a devout Mormon. None of that has changed. Okay. Go ahead. No, but but this is this is a book that tackles faith in a very, very fair, logical, and frankly heartbreaking way. And that's not something that you can do in a vacuum, you know, like you, you have to have a very rational grip on your own faith in order to write something like this. And I think it probably lends a, lends a hand to the idea that his faith is that devout to begin with in order to in order for him to come through the writing of this book while still being a devout anything, you know? 
Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that the, the, you know, just to, I, I agree with you holistically. I think that this is a challenging book and I can't, I can, I can imagine what writing this book could be like, or what like writing any deep character, right. Can be like, because generally you're pulling on your own experiences that I, I feel like this might, this probably is based on questions. It probably was based on a questioning of faith. It does have that, that era of a sequel too, which is that of challenging the status quo and the status quo of the first book in many ways was, was the, was the, uh, the preexisting government of the Lord ruler and then the second book is the the sort of state of the world and prophecy and everything else that came before. And it it deeply shakes all of our characters, like what what happens inside of this novel. But I mean, it's it's we would be remiss if we didn't mention how fundamentally this tears down Sazed. Like this is right. This is this is beyond unfortunate. This is a priest losing his robes. And being told that everything that he believed in was wrong. And the dude recorded 300 religions. And like, ah, man. And that's why yeah. I say is it is one of the most compelling characters in fiction. Thank you. Good night. Just kidding. Yes. Kind of. He's an totally incredibly in compelling character. I, I think I a little bit over the top in the most compelling. But he's definitely in my logged in the back of my head as one of my favorite characters in fiction. So I don't disagree with your take when you when you came out with like the the opinion on like one of the most important. I'm like, yeah, for sure. And that's what makes this entire journey so compelling. Shockingly, Vin of whom has been our main character has been very compelling, but says it's the real homeboy, you know? Yeah. And it takes him yeah, has, getting Tindwell and then losing Tindwell to like really, really deeply feel that. And then seeing him being like brought, brought down to his knees. <sighs> Fuck. All right. So anything else that you wanted to say about this book? We, we, we're going to get to say more about it tomorrow, but anything else that you want to wrap up this episode with? Do you feel like we missed talking about this last section? Ah, oh, man, I was not expecting this book to be one of my favorite books of all time. Wow. I really wasn't until this section. Okay. And it, it very clearly is. It took a front seat. This entire book, I loved. I was very, very happy with the entire time we were reading it. But this last section jumped the line. I'm like, fuck, man. Yeah. I didn't expect it. It's pretty fucking wild on all all fronts, all cards. So, yeah, I, I agree with you there. This This was the book that really sold me on doing this this as a show this was the book that sold me on thinking to read more brandon sanderson i i had agreed to myself that i was going to read the trilogy and then really settle whether or not we were going to cover it this is the book where i was like all right this is pretty fucking good like first book is is like a heist movie book it's it's a great time i I would classify it as like a joy ride this book is like daggers everywhere heart all the time yeah. action incredible character moments everything it's got everything for sure yeah i'm I'm glad you loved it as more than i did it sounds like but i i do really love this book so with that we would generally move into pj's predictions i think i'm going to save them for tomorrow we'll just start off the episode on a sloppy note for fun <laughs> sounds great we're we're <laughs> we're late it's we almost we are 2 a.m a for crossland 
Yeah. This is not the fault of the episode recording. This is the fault of my internet giving out. Thankfully, we record yep. locally, and so it wasn't too bad of an issue, but I tried to figure it out so that we could be back on video and audio and not have quite as many issues, but needless to say, we do have a number of predictions to pay off this week, of course, as we hit the end of this book. We will either start the next episode or end it with those. So we'll get there. We promise you. We're sorry. It's just we've been running at this point on the clock for 430, even though this episode is probably only two hours and 20 minutes long. So that's that's where we'll leave you for the week. We don't have anything to read, of course, because next week is the wrap up episode with Foxy Reader. So that's where we'll leave you for the week. Thank you, as always, Tim and Andrew, for helping us keep this show show existing you can check out the links in our show notes you can find our schedule patreon previous episodes website all our social media accounts all in one very convenient location that social media handle would be words whiskey pod on twitter instagram and reddit you can email us at words and whiskey show at gmail.com you can find our patreon which will allow you to listen to our devil's cut of every episode where we chat about whatever before we get started. It's kind of our warm up, And then once in a while we'll put chunks of the episode that we didn't want to cut, but we cut for time into that. So you can, you can listen to all that through patreon.com slash words and whiskey. And now there are t-shirts. We have t-shirts. We have merch. So you can like support us through t-shirts at TeePublic. There's a link on that. I think it's tpublic.com slash Atomic Pylon Media. But it, it, I know it's something like that, but the link is there. You can find the link. I know yeah, for I sure. Yeah, I think it's Atomic Dash Pylon Dash Media. You know, like dashes as opposed to spaces, of course. And there's no no gap option. But the link is for sure in our links on the website. So definitely check it out. If you follow our link tree, you can see it right there at the bottom. It's got a nice little t-shirt logo that I programmed last night. Get it. So it's there. It's there. It's there. Thank you all so much for listening. If you haven't uh, before, give us a follow uh, at Words and Whiskey Show on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, wherever you listen Beyond that, we actually found that there was a small issue with the short pours feed where it wasn't showing up in some places. We fixed that. So if you're looking for the short pour show, all you need to do is search words and whiskey short pours. It should show up on all of the primary podcast catchers as well as most of the it actually showed up on the smaller ones before it showed up on the bigger ones. Apple Podcasts was one of the big issues that it wasn't showing up on, and we fixed that as well as Google Podcasts. So it took a ticket. They were just being dicks, basically. But it's fixed now. So check it out. Check it out. Beyond that, we will see you next week with the Foxy Reader. Goodbye.